Good morning, good morning, good morning. It is Sunday, August 8th. This is the Common Sense Party Podcast. I'm your host, Dwayne Ali, trying to bring common sense back to this country. Today, we're going to talk about uh, Vice President Harris, um, critical race theory, uh, vaccines, um, Arizona voting, infrastructure bill. Right. Uh, please uh, give us a review on Spotify. Google, give us five stars. You can reach us at Facebook, IG, or at the Common Sense Party uh, Pod via Gmail. Uh, support the Common Sense. And let's get to it. All is lost. This is the Common Sense Party Podcast, and our oath is being to bring common sense to this really crazy world. Uh, right for our first story, uh, Vice President Harris. Have, we haven't really seen her in the news or anything like that. Nothing positive. Everything we see is negative about her. Uh, this might be a reason why. Check it out. From Axios reporter Jonathan Swan, the Democratic Party's most influential women met with Vice President Kamala Harris in efforts to course-correct the Veep's missteps so far in the Biden-Harris administration. According to Swan, the women discussed how they could leverage Harris's experience as a prosecutor, California Attorney General, and Senator in response to the pointed criticisms of her performance so far as Vice President, particularly her answers to questions about the border crisis. This comes after some reporting in July of an, quote, unhealthy environment inside Harris's office, as well as senior White House officials being frustrated with the vice president's performance. Uh, so, Kim, mm-hmm. the thing that strikes me about this story is that why is this a surprise? I mean, this shouldn't be. Right. This was the issue that Harris had on the campaign trail. It's why she didn't make it very far in the presidential right. campaign. She had to drop out early because this was a repeat problem. So I don't understand how we didn't foresee this or how the Democratic Party didn't foresee this being an issue. I don't know how they didn't either. I mean, this was obviously, like you said, very clear during her campaign. And people don't change. You know, if she's got problems during the campaign, if the American people aren't taking to her, then why do you think the American people would suddenly, just because you made her vice president? So, um, look, she was an unlikable candidate. People liked her at first because she was taking down Joe Biden, and they liked that she called him out for... Uh, you know, a, a variety of different things and saying that she believed the women and calling them a racist and all these things. And so that kind of trended well during the debates. But then after that, people realized that she flip-flopped. She wasn't really a leader. She uh, doesn't really have any actual, seems, ideas or policy or ideology. And she seems to just kind of do whatever her donors tell her to do. Um, and so, you know, look, that the American people sniffed that out and said, hey, don't really like her. 
and so her her approval ratings or her I don't what way you want to call it during the um, during the primary but they tanked and so but nonetheless you know she was the pick she was the one that had all of the resources from Hillary Clinton's campaign uh, a lot of the donors from Hillary Clinton a lot of backing from the establishment they made her a vice president and now they're shocked and they really by the way were not just thinking it would stop at vice president and the reason why they're scrambling is because they ultimately wanted her to to replace Joe um, as you know whether he needs to be replaced early or whether he needed to uh, step you know not run for a second term and this is just sort of crumbling I think their entire sort of vision of how this would go yeah well I think you know it's interesting the the rumor always was or the feeling always was about Kamala Harris both on the campaign trail and when she was a senator that she is very good when she is scripted when she knows you know the question and she's got a scripted answer but she's very bad and kind of falls apart when she has to respond on her feet. And I think this has been borne out, you know, time and time again, especially on these questions she's getting about the border. She's the point person for the administration on the border, and she has a really hard time answering questions about it. You know, you've seen this in, in multiple cases. And then you look, you know, in the Axios coverage, one thing the White House will come out with again and again is anytime, you know, there's a critical story about her, well, this is gendered coverage. You know, this is because she's a woman. And, you know, sure, I'm sure, you know, media does cover women differently, but I think the point you made here is the, is the right one to focus on, which is, guys, you picked her. Like, she's the person that you have, and she's going to be, you know, a presence in 2024. Whether she's on the ticket or if Joe Biden decides not to run again, she will be the head of that ticket because that's her role as, right, as vice president. So this is an issue that has to be solved, gender or no gender, and I'm not sure how they're going to do it because, again, as you point out, people don't change, and this has been a long and known history with Kamala Harris. Yeah, people are not taking to her, so they, they've just got a problem. They either need to change her, uh, or they're just going to have to live with a bad candidate going forward. Uh, well, but that's really their only options at this yeah. point. They cannot rebil- rehabilitate her. You can't change her. She's yeah. going to giggle at inappropriate times. Uh, she's going to give answers that are vague. She's not a leader. It's just not what she's, you know, maybe she's a great prosecutor, but she's not a leader. And it's very, very apparent. The giggling at inappropriate times is maybe my favorite tick that she has, is just to laugh at all manner of questions. But I guess my question for, for you is, you know, do you see, how, how big of a deal would it be to replace her on the ticket? You know, if Joe Biden decides to run again, how bad does it have to get? And would it sort of just tank the whole thing if they're like, yeah, we're going to, we're going with a, with a second string here. You know, can that the even happen? I mean, I, I think that that's kind of where they're sort of needing to go with this. I don't think that Kamala can be the leader of the Democratic Party going forward. Um, the only way that they're going to be able to optically get out of this is if she somehow has a crisis and she can no longer do it. So she says herself, I have decided for me and my family, for my husband or whatever it is, but it's going to be difficult because she doesn't have children, right? So it's one thing if you say my kids need me, I'm spending too much time away, this is like hard on my family, right? Uh, like that's what Kellyanne Conway was able to sort of say. It's like, ah, my kids need me now, I gotta get out of here. Well, in fairness, I think so, they did. Like they were having like mental uh, yeah. breaks on TikTok, but yeah. Right, yeah, right, yes, yeah, her daughter was definitely, but um, but you know, so Kamala doesn't really have that, that sort of uh, escape. It would have to be, I mean, they could say, they could, you know, then I, I don't know how you can get away with lying to people for too long, but I guess you could, you could say something like, having a health crisis that I need to deal with and focus on. But then it's like, well, what's the health crisis? And so it's going to be really difficult for them to figure out a way to manufacture a reason for Kamala Harris to 
decide on her own to step down, but that is going to be the only way out of this. And then they're going to have to probably replace her with someone who's also a woman of color, right? That's going to be their, um, the, the way, and that's going to be a challenge when they're narrowing down their pool to such a small um, group. The other thing that I think is interesting about this story is that some, so much of this is also a product of the White House's own making, you know, first in her selection, knowing that she has this obvious baggage, but second, they have really pushed her out front. You know, they've given her some very high-profile responsibilities. They've made her the point person for the border. I think she's the point person on several other task forces that are actually major White House priorities and White House issues and things that you know the press is going to ask about. Like, you know Republicans aren't going to give you a pass on the border. Like, that's just not right. who they are. And so you right. put someone in charge knowing that, you know, they, ha they, they may not have or be the best person to respond to it. So I'm kind of like wondering what the White House is doing here. Yeah, I mean, so there's, you know, two kind of ways you could maybe interpret that. So one way is that they were trying to get her to sort of look more presidential. She was doing a lot of stuff with foreign policy um, and the border. And so that's kind of the stuff that a president is really going to be pressed on when they're running for office. And so it, maybe it was them trying to see, okay, can she look presidential? Can people in their minds imagine her as president of the United States? The other way to look at this is maybe they already knew Maybe by that point, they kind of got a sense that Kamala is not going to work and that we're eventually just going to have to replace her. So let's make her the fall guy, right? Like the border crisis is difficult. It's impossible. It's going to it's going to bring Joe Biden's ratings down. Uh, so maybe we should just throw Kamala in there, let her be the fall guy for it. And then when Joe Biden runs again in 2024, he can kind of point to his inept vice president. I mean, that's maybe, maybe. Hey, I've seen a lot of cynicism in a lot of White Houses. You can't <laughs> rule it out, but... Right. I guess we'll just keep watching it all unfold. So thank you guys. More Rising coming up next. Yeah, that opinion was from The Rising, but I guess I disagree because wasn't Joe Biden um, vice president to Barack Obama? And what was he doing during his vice presidency? Uh, let's see the automotive the financial crisis and he did the auto uh, the automotive deal i think so uh joe biden ran for president like four or five times before he became president so i kind of disagree with what they're saying not because she's a black woman it's just that you have to be put in that fire to see what you're made of so the, I think one of the un, unsung things that Barack Obama did that when he became president he made Hillary Clinton Secretary of State and you know why he did that? to put her on the world stage put her in that fire with all the leaders so, the, so if, she had won if she had won the presidency without any issues she would be a very she would be the first woman president but like I said, I think she'll do a good, I think, think, because I'm not in those meetings and, and they're not covering her correctly. So the border crisis is a border crisis. Everybody wants to come here. Everybody's making an issue of uh, illegal aliens coming to America and sending money back. That's what they do. Um, most everyone wants the American dream and. Americans trying to keep people out and you can't do it that way but 
that's just my opinion trying to put some common common sense on the spin for our next story we're gonna go to the mass mandate and covid uh please get your covid shot covid shots uh pfizer which is 98 percent effective it won't cure you but it will lessen the hospitalization and death rate for you uh, right now texas and florida are 50 percent of the positive cases in america and 98 percent of the hospitalizations are unvaccinated people and whatever whatever issue you have with uh, vaccinations uh, is better than being on a ventilator uh, anyway uh, we're gonna go to Uh, Chris Murphy, check it out. Thank you, Mr. President. Mr. President, I rarely come to the floor to directly respond to speeches given by my colleagues. I normally like to use the chamber to make my own arguments on their merits rather than to make arguments against um, specific colleagues. But yesterday, I listened to a speech by Senator Cruz of Texas. And it was one of the most dangerous speeches that I've ever heard given on the Senate floor, and it deserves a response. Now, I understand that Republicans don't want to talk about the economy. They don't want to talk about the fact that we've had more jobs added to the economy in the first five months of President Biden's term than any other first-term president. I know they don't want to talk about the rapid expansion of the economy that's happening. I understand Republicans don't want to talk about what we're debating on the Senate floor right now, which is the biggest bipartisan investment in infrastructure in the history of the country. And I also understand that the senator from Texas doesn't like the new guidance announced this week by the CDC. And he's not alone. From what I can tell, a lot of Republicans here are upset, as are a lot of non-political Americans. Nobody likes to wear a mask. Nobody likes that the new recommendation is that some Americans need to wear them. Again, I don't like wearing a mask. I hate it. My, my kids hate the masks more. But here's what the CDC said. The CDC's scientists have been carefully following this dramatic increase in cases that we've seen all across uh, the country as the Delta variant spreads, even through vaccinated people. First, we can't ignore this, the fact that there's been this huge increase in cases. The national seven-day average is triple what it was from a month ago. We're averaging 40,000 new cases a day. This is a big problem, and it is overwhelming parts of our healthcare system. Now, I wish this weren't the case, but it requires us to think about adjusting policy. Second, the CDC is looking at this new evidence that indicates that even fully vaccinated individuals who become infected with the Delta variant can carry the virus and transmit it to others, even if they don't get sick. Now, this latest development is important because it allows the Delta variant, the more contagious variant, to spread faster. Early information from the CDC shows that the Delta variant is as contagious as the chickenpox, more contagious than earlier strains of COVID. And remember, not every American today is vaccinated. For instance, my youngest son is nine years old. He can't get vaccinated. If the evidence suggests that I can transmit the virus to him, 
even if my vaccine prevents me from getting really sick, then that matters. Finally, with so many Americans still unvaccinated, the virus still has plenty of bodies in which to mutate. Right now, the good news is that we've got three authorized COVID-19 vaccines that are pretty effective against severe illness. But the worry is eventually the vaccine is going to mutate into a version of itself that is resistant to the current vaccines. And with so many Americans choosing to stay unvaccinated and evidence suggesting that vaccinated people who are infected with the Delta variant can transmit it to people who are unvaccinated, the CDC has concluded that right now we need to take additional steps to cut down on the pathways that the virus has to spread and keep mutating before it's too late and we have a virus that our vaccines don't work against at all. Now, what does the new guidance say? It recommends that fully vaccinated people wear a mask in public indoor settings in places in the country where there are a lot of cases. And since most young kids aren't vaccinated, the CDC is also recommending that when school opens, teachers and kids should wear masks. That's the argument that the CDC is making. That's the evidence upon which they have issued their new guidance. And it's perfectly legitimate to contest the CDC's decision or the reasons that they gave for making the decision. It is okay for anybody in this body to disagree with the conclusions that they reach. But that's not what Senator Cruz did yesterday. He didn't come to the floor and argue against the merits of the CDC's argument. No, in fact, not once during the speech, and I watched the whole speech, did he ever reference the actual reasons for the CDC's new guidance, not once. In fact, he claimed that the CDC offered no explanation. At one point after mischaracterizing the CDC's announcement, he asked rhetorically why the CDC changed the guidance. Who knows, he said. Anyone who listened to that speech, or frankly many other speeches that are being given by Republicans all across Capitol Hill this week, would logically come to the conclusion that the CDC had offered not a single explanation for the new guidance. And then after creating the impression that the CDC didn't have any reasons for the new recommendation, the senator from Texas announced that he had discovered the reason. He said that the real reason the CDC changed their guidance was because the CDC is, quote, an arm of the Democratic National Committee. And the Democrats in Congress are, quote, faithful little foot soldiers of the CDC. He offered no explanation as to why it would benefit Democrats politically or the DNC or the CDC to recommend mask wearing. He just simply claimed that the CDC was a political puppet of the DNC and the guidance was politically motivated. The closest he came to a more detailed explanation of this claim was when he talked about the school guidance. There, the senator from Texas claimed without any evidence that the only reason the CDC made this decision was because it was demanded by, quote, union bosses. And that, quote, the CDC said, ma'am, yes, ma'am, we will issue the order demanded by the union bosses. Mr. President, that's all made up. And the senator from Texas isn't the only Republican saying things like this. There are dozens of national Republicans making these same wild, unfounded allegations. The political agenda at the CDC that Republicans allege is a fiction. It's constructed out of thin air. 
and it's frankly an insult to the thousands of dedicated non-political public health professionals at the CDC who just go to work every day trying to keep Americans safe. These aren't politicians, these are epidemiologists and scientists and doctors who've worked their entire lives trying to keep this country safe. I'm not saying they get it right every time. I've criticized many of the decisions made by the CDC during the pandemic. It's okay to criticize their decisions, but to claim that they are all corrupt, they're these politically controlled hacks, that's an outrage. And rhetoric like, like that is going to get people killed. Because we are still in the middle of the epidemic. And what anti-CDC Republicans are doing through these attacks on our public health agencies is to intentionally undermine people's faith in the nation's preeminent public health institutions, right at the moment where we need people to believe in them. I'm not saying they should be immune from criticism, but criticism should be based on the science. Contest the new evidence the CDC says that requires people to wear masks again. But saying that the scientists are deliberately ignoring the science to effectuate some top-secret political agenda, give me a break. And by the way, what political interest is served by recommending that people wear masks indoors again? People hate masks. There's only political downside to suggesting that people start wearing them again. It just belies plain old common sense to say that politics is behind the new guidance. If the CDC was worried about politics, they certainly wouldn't be recommending anybody wear masks again. And by the way, that's all the CDC is doing. They're giving guidance. Over and over, Republicans refer to this new guidance as an order, or as a senator from Texas said repeatedly, an edict. They know that's not true. They know that's not true. But Republicans want to scare you into believing that the federal government has more power than it does. The CDC doesn't require people to do anything. They issue recommendations. But that doesn't suit this narrative about socialist, statist Democrats secretly pulling the strings of their marionettes at the CDC. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Don't come to the Senate floor and make things up. Don't destroy people's reputations and careers with wild, unsubstantiated allegations about political motivations. CDC doesn't get it right 100% of the time, but they don't have some secret political agenda. But the more people believe that they do, the less likely it is that people will follow their recommendations the 90, 95% of the time that they do get it right. And that will guarantee that this virus never disappears. I understand, Mr. President, there's an element of the Republican Party that just wants to destroy all government institutions. It's seeking to discredit any effort by any public agency to do good in this country. In normal times, I would argue that that is dangerous. But in the middle of a pandemic, it's deadly. And Republicans of conscience should come to this floor and start telling the truth. Truth? Fuck your feelings. The truth is needed. Time of need. They ain't care about that. All they worry about is consolidating power. He... Ted Cruz and most of the Republicans scared of losing power. That's why they're doing what they do. 
you just the insulting the their electorate and their electorate is gonna die you know me I say if you want to go ahead and die go ahead do that get out the way because we need to we need to get get this right because ain't no ain't no way that that we what am I trying to say in a way that we can have these people that I don't understand that if they try to stay in power they'll kill off the electorate by being obviously you know they took they took the vaccine but telling other people not to take the vaccine I don't understand that I don't know well the only thing I, I do understand is people who in power won't give up power willingly well no we ain't fine but I always say the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence what? simply because you don't have evidence that something does exist does not mean that you have evidence that something doesn't exist what? what country you from? what? what ain't no country I ever heard of they speak English and what? That is the Republicans logic that's what they're doing absence of evidence doesn't mean just because it's not there doesn't mean it doesn't exist so that's what they're doing to their people all right this is a common sense party podcast uh read us review us at google spotify wherever you get your podcast make us the number one podcast in america our oath is to bring common sense back to this country uh moving on on the COVID front, like I said, take the COVID vaccine. A lot of people who are not taking the vaccine are ending up in the hospital. Check this out from CNN. The number one thing that we can do to support our local businesses is get out of their way. That was Texas Republican H. Scott Apley in 2019, before the pandemic came along, and he became a raging critic. That's right! Praising mask burnings, calling a health official promoting vaccine an absolute enemy of a free people, and last Friday echoing a claim vaccines don't really work anyway. But just after posting that, according to a GoFundMe page set up for his family, Apley was admitted to a hospital, diagnosed with COVID, and by Tuesday, he was dead. The virus. They're working hard. Looks like by April, you know, in theory, when it gets a little warmer, it miraculously goes away. I hope that's true. Plenty of Republicans joined Donald Trump's early dismissal of the COVID threat, even as he wound up in the hospital from the virus. Among them, one-time presidential hopeful Herman Cain, 
who downplayed masking at one point before he went to a crowded Trump rally unmasked last summer, developed COVID symptoms, and died. But GOP downplaying of the danger did not stop then, not even close. In Tennessee, conservative radio host Phil Valentine joked about the virus this summer. Then it nearly killed him and left his brother pleading with the public. We want as many people as can hear my voice this morning to put the politics aside and go get the vaccine. In Louisiana, Republican Luke Letlow died of COVID in December, weeks before he was to be sworn into Congress. He wanted the vaccine. It wasn't available. Now his wife, elected to fill his seat, can't believe others still won't take it. I would have given anything. I would have given everything for that shot to be available for us. I mean, looking back now, and for someone to turn it away, I just... it. It's heartbreaking to me. Still, a recent poll found nearly a third of Republicans insist they will never take the vaccine, even as other people like Travis Campbell, who just didn't get around to getting the shot, is also begging from his hospital bed for everyone to get on board. The truth, the love of God, if you, if you really want to have a chance, don't fall down to all the TV logic social media. Yeah, some Republican leaders are now in a lukewarm fashion embracing the idea that we should do something about this, but an awful lot of others still remain white hot against mask mandates, against any kind of social distancing, against any sense that there should actually be restrictions if you do not get the vaccination, even while their own supporters keep getting sick and dying. Erin? All right. Thank you very much, Tom. And I bring in now Dr. Jonathan Reiner, the medical advisor to the George W. Bush uh, White House. Uh, Dr. Reiner, first your reaction to what happened to Scott Apley. I mean, it's horrible. Yeah, Mike, uh, it's, it's horrible. My condolences to Mr. Apley's family. Uh, there should be no schadenfreude uh, for, you know, the death of somebody uh, like Mr. Apley or anyone else who has, you know, doubted the seriousness of, of this uh, horrible pandemic and yet has gotten sick. This virus has split the country by politics. And, and this is the tragedy, that we've let politics blind people to science. Uh, you know, I'm reminded that at, at the time of the uh, 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 signing of the Declaration of Independence, Benjamin Franklin said very presciently that, you know, if we don't all hang together, we will surely hang separately, and we're starting to see that. We need to come together as a country and listen to scientists, not to, not to politicians, listen to scientists about this pandemic. 96% of physicians in this country have been vaccinated. That's about all the public ne needs to understand right now. Physicians get it, the public needs to get it. We shouldn't be listening to uh, polarized uh, politics. Dr. Raj Kelsey is with us now. Uh, Dr. Kelsey, it's so good to have you with us. Um, I, I know that last year at this time, there was an argument made that the ICU beds were full, um, that because of that it interferes with people who may be going to ICUs for, for other emergencies, if somebody had a heart attack, if there was an accident. Is this something that you're experiencing right now in the ER there in Illinois? Oh yeah. Uh, on several levels, Christine. First of all, thank you for having me, uh, Boris. Um, 
I work in eight different hospitals, one of which is a small rural community hospital, which is what's called a critical access hospital. That's most of America. I have six beds in my ER. I have 20 beds in the hospital. I'm the only doctor in town. When I have COVID patients that fill up my ER and sometimes fill up the waiting room, I have no tertiary care hospitals to send them to because they're full and their ICUs are full. And yeah, people are having heart attacks, open heart surgery, uh, major abdominal surgeries, massive trauma surgeries. And then they sit in the recovery room because they're waiting for an ICU bed because some of those beds are occupied by COVID patients. So, and now that the uptick is happening, uh, we're back to, I feel like we're back to square one in many ways. However, I would say that people vaccinated are less sick when they do get COVID. That's what I was just gonna ask you about the unvaccinated versus versus the vaccinated. We've seen some people who have been unvaccinated, have gotten COVID, and who have come out and said, please do not make the same mistake I made. What are you hearing right. from people that are sick that are unvaccinated? You know, this is a great question. So uh, the first thing I have to do as a doctor when I assess somebody in the ER with COVID who has not gotten vaccinated is ask the question simply, have you been vaccinated? <clears throat> a lot of people receive this with judgment. They feel like I'm judging them, criticizing them, scrutinizing them because I think of the whole political layout in the country. And I'm simply just being a doctor asking a fundamental question. If you are vaccinated, I can counsel you in one way. If you're not vaccinated, I have to be much more cautious, admit you to the hospital, give you certain medications, uh, uh, antibodies, steroids, uh, put you on your belly if you're breathing poorly, put you on a ventilator. And so this is important. People are, are, are receiving this with a lot of judgment because I think people are very conflicted. They're conflicted by all the messages on TV and from politicians and uh, the, the, the thought that they think that this is infringing on their freedoms in, in the world. And fundamentally, I think there's so many more risky things a human being could do in America, like just go and drive your car and cross an intersection, then get a vaccine that might save you and your family's life. So uh, how are you and the team holding up? Because like you said, you feel like you're back to square one, which has to be a really hard place to be because you remember what it was like to be there a year ago. But with the inundation that you're seeing, help us understand yeah. what you and your teams are going through. So, so one of the one of the hidden undercurrents of um, emergency medicine healthcare is how humans treat us in healthcare. Uh, initially, Christy, uh, when pandemic started, people were dripping with compassion and kindness. We were heroes on the front lines. You remember all the commercials that demonstrated healthcare workers with the masks embedded in their face. That's gone now. We are just in the way. We are critics of patients, uh, according to them. Um, many are still very kind and compassionate, but many are looking at us like we are the problem. We are mandating um, things that are infringing on their freedoms, and we're simply there to just take care of them. They made the decision to come to us in the emergency department, in the hospital. We will always be there for you, America. We will always be there for you, regardless of your choices in life, good choices, bad choices. But we're tired. We're so incredibly tired. We're strung thin. Supplies run out. And uh, we never get a break, right? After I, I put somebody on a ventilator uh, or take care of a, a younger person, older person with COVID, I have to go to the next room and so do my nurses and technicians. We just don't get a break. Um, the break we're looking for is the break of, we need your compassion, we need your understanding, we need your empathy, America, to understand what we're going through so that you can help us help you. Dr. Raj, you have that. You have that from us and you have that from an awful lot of people. And I know some days it doesn't feel like it, but we appreciate so much everything that you do, and we can't imagine being in your shoes. Dr. Raj Kelsey, to you and your team, thank you so, so much. We're with you here. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yep. We got to appreciate uh, those hard workers that, yes, they're on the front lines, and 
it has become kind of annoying to other people, but say thank you. Just like how you say thank you to a cop, you say thank you to a firefighter, say thank you to ERs, ambulance workers, say thank you to the nurses and doctors because, yeah, they got families too and they they putting themselves on the line, but this is a problem because Republicans are pushing that the vac- vaccinations don't work. But what did the, uh, they're short-sighted. They're trying to uh, oh, they make this so political, and it's just easy. It's it's so easy. Why do you make things so hard? Change is uh, if change is something that happens all the time, and if you don't adjust, you become extinct. And guess what's happening? A lot of Republican voters are not hip to change, and they're gonna go extinct. I guess the virus was sent for a reason. All right. Uh, this is a Common Sense Party Podcast. Uh, rate us, review us. Give us five stars on Google, Spotify, and where you get your podcasts. We're also available on IG and Facebook. You can send us an email at the Common Sense Party Podcast at Gmail. Support the Common Sense. Uh, moving on to our next story, which is Matt Gates. It's just... It's just still crazy. I guess he and Fox News has fell out. Uh, we'll go to MSNBC for this one. Gates taking time out from what has been an expensive battle while he's dealing with accusations of criminal sex trafficking to start a podcast, as one does, if you're not also busy with your day job working for your constituents. Gates using this new video podcast format to take aim and settle scores with Basically, the platform that made him famous, Fox News. I have many friends still at Fox News, and I enjoy our discussions, whether they're on air or off air. That said, Fox News isn't what it used to be. Certainly isn't what it used to be for him, because he can't get on there anymore. And the TV-style banners reinforce the point. Fox News fails. Fox News isn't what it used to be. Shout out to writing the Chirons. Now... Gates has not been on the network since what was a widely panned and bizarre interview with Tucker Carlson. And that was all before Gates had appeared on Fox a record 310 times. It really made him famous and got him where he was politically because it's how Trump noticed him as well. Now, like many Republican officials, he was reportedly trying to get a job at Fox if he left Congress before these recent troubles. Now, why are we discussing all this? Because it is larger than Matt Gates, who, as I mentioned, denies all wrongdoing in that open probe. He exemplifies a certain kind of lawmaker in the Republican Party who is ascendant and who doesn't just see media as a way to push a political agenda or have a backup plan if his political career ends, but rather that seems to be the goal of the whole career. And that means a lot of trolling, going so far over the top that, honestly, it's exactly what would have seemed like parody even recently in American life. Take a look at how... The then-character of Stephen Colbert used to open his comedy show when he pretended to be a right-wing media figure. And think about the character of Matt Gates opening his podcast now. This is the Colbert Report! Welcome, my fellow 
fellow patriots, you are in the right place. This is the movement for you. I'm a canceled man in some corners of the internet. They aren't really coming for me. They're coming for you. I'm just in the way. When satire becomes reality, is the joke on us. Yeah. Joke's not on me. Joke's on him. That's what happens to rich kids. Uh, hopefully, he will be indicted or arrested. And this nightmare will be over. And a independent or hopefully a Democrat can get his seat in the House. Uh, on to our next story. The story that keeps on giving. The Arizona recount. And they're also doing recounts in Philly. And what else? Don't haven't done it in Georgia, so they, it might it might come, but the uh, election lie that doesn't go away, and taxpayers are paying millions and millions of dollars of a a fake story. You gotta check. Follow the money. I always say, follow the money. Check your six. That's the message from one Republican Arizona state senator threatening members of her own party to watch their backs for refusing to push the big lie and support the baseless Arizona election audit. State Senator Wendy Rogers sending out a fundraising email saying, quote, personally, I think they should be in jail. Let me put it this way. I'm Air Force and State Senator Sonny Borelli is a Marine. We are coming for you. You'd better check your six. One of those members of the board is a, of the board of supervisors that they're talking about Bill Gates actually also received this orange prison jumpsuit in the mail today after she sent out that email calling for them to be put in jail. Out front now, Bill Gates, the Republican Vice Chairman of Maricopa County's Board of Supervisors. Thank you for coming in, Bill. Um, you're, you've, been dealing, you've been dealing with this sham audit for months now, but now being threatened and warned by other elected Republicans to watch your back. Can you just talk to me about the level of threats that you have been receiving, especially now? Yeah, unfortunately, uh, the threats continue, and, and they're not simply organic. They're being driven, unfortunately, by members of the Arizona State Senate and other Republicans across the country. Um, we have uh, we received phone calls uh, into our offices at the Board of Supervisors, our staff, uh, you know, saying that our families are going to be slaughtered and threatening us to stop standing up for the good elections workers of Maricopa County. I want to offer some context here. You are now being targeted because you are standing up against the sham audit altogether, but specifically because you're refusing now to hand over routers used by the county's election division, which the state senate has tried to subpoena multiple times. The same thing former President Trump and his supporters are also calling for. Let me play this for folks. They don't want to give up the routers. They don't want to give them. They are fighting like hell. Why are these commissioners fighting not to give the routers? We're going to pull the packet captures out of the routers, and then we're going to have a cyber guy He'll read it and he'll go, here's what happened. Computer ID, boom. Here's who did it. Here was the attacker. Here was the attackee. Now, importantly, this is a wild and baseless conspiracy theory that voting machines in your county were connected to the Internet on Election Day and somehow Italian satellites were utilized to change votes from Trump to Biden. 
Can you lay out once and for all what you know about these routers? It sounds even crazy when I ask it, but I do want to ask it. What you even know about these routers and why and, and why you will not turn them over? Yeah, so here's the issue. This all comes down to the question of whether the machines used in November 2020 election were connected to the internet, and they were not. We had two independent auditors come in. The Board of Supervisors voted for this, and they established that these machines were not connected to the internet. Furthermore, we have provided logs pursuant to these subpoenas from the Arizona State Senate that if the cyber ninjas knew what they were looking at, they would see that these logs establish that these machines were never connected to the internet. But they continue to push forward asking for the routers. Just so your viewers understand, the reason that we're not turning over these routers is because they basically would provide a blueprint if they got into the wrong hands of the information systems at Maricopa County. Now, why is that an issue? Well, we have a lot of personal information of our citizens on that information on that on those routers. But more than that, actually, if uh, this got into the wrong hands, it would provide information on sensitive law enforcement activities law enforcement personnel that could put these operations at risk. And it's not just Maricopa County because we share these databases with law enforcement across the state. So this could literally threaten sensitive law enforcement activities across the state of Arizona if we were to turn these routers over. But still, the threats come in. These elected officials know this or could know this very easily, but do not and you're in your family now remains in danger. Bill Gates, thank you for coming on. Republican deniers are also ignored. Yeah. Common sense. Common sense ain't all that common. Okay, he just said the information was sent is available. So what's the real reason for these guys trying to get the the routing information? Uh like I said Taxpayers are paying billions and billions of dollars, uh, sorry, billions, uh, millions of dollars for a cyber company that's not very good. If you check the hearings, all they do, and they say we need more time because they're spending your money. And the Arizona Republicans are, yeah, blind leading the blind. All right. Uh, this is the Common Sense Party podcast. Rate us, review us, give us five stars at Google. Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, support the common sense, bring common sense back to common sense back to this country. All right, are we gonna do a little bipartisanship? Is it dead? It probably is, but smart people are not really trying to do this. But this is, uh, um, I guess someone, a cinema presented a bill and then I guess Holly tried to attach something to it that would kill the bill I guess it got killed if this doesn't open up which it will not her eyes to fake how the Republicans are about bipartisanship I don't know what will check it out sure but two two um, comments about oversight first is I just want to associate myself with Senator Johnson's remarks about the need 
uh, to make sure that we're conducting oversight and that the statutes actually being followed and the agencies are appropriately responding to us on that on a similar point. I want to mention an amendment that I had intended to offer today if, if, the, if the underlying bill had been offered related to ICE. And I want to thank the Chairman for working with me on this. I brought this up in uh, the hearing for Mr. Gonzalez and again with Secretary Mayorkas. ICE is reporting to members of this committee and to me that they are being discouraged from actively pursuing arrests in the interior of this country, and in particular that DHS has set up a new pre-clearance system called the Arrest Authorization Request Tool that requires ICE officers to submit documentation before they make an arrest, to get approval from superiors before they make an arrest, and ICE, is, ICE officers have told me and I know other members of this committee that this is seriously hampering their efforts. I think it is absolutely vital, and by the way Mr. Chairman we can see that in the number of arrests down to 2,500 per month in the early months of this administration compared to 10,000 in previous months. The ICE union is strongly, strongly asking for transparency to, to find out how many times an ICE officer has asked to make an arrest and that request has been denied under this new guidance uh, issued by the administration and under the new system, the preclearance system that is set up. Now, Secretary Mayorkas, when I asked him about this, acted as if he didn't know anything about it. When I asked about specific instances that, by the way, were brought to me and to Senator Langford and others on this committee by ICE, he said he didn't know anything about it. I think this committee needs to find out how many times ICE officers have asked to make arrests and they have been denied by their leadership pursuant to these guidelines in this new system. Now, I've discussed this with the Chairman. I want to thank you, Mr. Chairman, for working with me on this. I know that you're trying, we're trying to get answers here. I understand that DHS does not want to give us this information. Uh, they've used... They've used a lot of excuses. Unfortunately, DHS has a history of using excuses to this committee, and it spans administrations. We've seen it from the previous administration, too. But I just want to highlight this issue. I, I promised the leadership of ICE that I would raise this. I'm, I'm deadly serious about it. It is, it is vital to them that we get answers about this. Their leadership is asking for it. Their membership is asking for it. I think it's a critical part of the work of this oversight committee. So thank you, Mr. Chairman, for working with me on this. I hope we can find some way to get this information uh, so that we can conduct oversight and figure out what the heck is going on at ICE. So thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Sinema. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I want to talk about this issue for a moment briefly because um, while I don't disagree with Senator Hawley's concern about the issue, I do want to be clear that this was a hostile amendment to a very bipartisan bill, the Shadow Wolves Bill, and it's an amendment that is unrelated to the substance of my legislation. So while I also want to work with the Chairman and Senator Hawley to find resolution and get these answers, I do want to note that I am disappointed that there was an attempt um, to add a hostile amendment to my bill without speaking with me or asking me about it. Um, I'm known for someone as someone who wants to work very closely with others to find bipartisan agreements. And I am, un I am unfortunately very disappointed that my bill is not moving forward today because of this attempt um, to attach an unrelated issue. I will continue to work together to get these answers, but I am disappointed about this. Mr. Chairman, I'm, I'm surprised to hear that, Senator Sinema, because my staff and your staff have discussed this frequently. And I'm happy to take a vote on the amendment. If you, my understanding is you didn't want to vote on this amendment, so therefore you withdrew your bill. I'm happy to have a vote on this amendment today. But I made a commitment to the men and women of ICE that I would stand up for them, and I'm going to keep that commitment. And I'm happy to work with you, and we have been working with you. So I, I don't know if you were looped into those conversations or perhaps not. All I can say is my staff has attempted to work with you and the chairman, and I'm happy to continue doing so. 
But I think this is an important part of our oversight commitment, and I made a commitment to the men and women of ICE, and I'm going to keep it. Mr. Chairman, if I might. Senator Sentiment. I share that commitment to the men and women of ICE, and as you know, um, many of the men and women of ICE live and work in my state, so this is a relationship that we have that is close and that is based on trust. I want to find a solution. I am disappointed that we're moving forward today without resolution on this issue, which prevents my bill, which is a bipartisan bill, from moving forward. So while I remain committed to solving this problem, I do want to reiterate that this was an amendment that didn't need to be attached to my bill. It can be a separate piece of legislation. I'd be more than happy to work with you. I will continue to work to solve this problem. But I, I was disappointed at an attempt to address a separate issue on a very bipartisan bill concerning our shadow wolves. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. You disappointed. Fuck your feelings, man. These people don't understand. You got to tip a table over. Tip a table over and they'll understand next time. They don't. They don't. They don't care about you, Miss Cinema. They don't care. But that's because the Senate is fifty-fifty. They don't care. The Republicans gonna do what they do because they've been uh, been allowed to do what they do for years. Like I said, people in power don't give up power willingly. Her and Manchin are helping the Republicans get control of the Senate, get control of the House. Like I said, if this shit was real, we tipping a table over during a meeting. But guess what? It is what it is. And uh, moving on. On a side note, um, I wanted to play this because it kind of caught my eye. I got it off off of Facebook about Confederate flags. Check it out. Started. It's kind of evolved into like a racial thing when really it was not started as a racial thing at all. And I think that like it should absolutely be flown. As you can tell from the blatant ignorance at the start of this video, the conversation takes place in a high school classroom in America, and it's about a Confederate flag. It's kind of evolved into like a racial thing when really it was not started as a racial thing at all. So slavery had nothing to do with race, okay? Luckily, not all of his classmates think the way he does. Welcome to the conversation, Christopher Justice. Any other opinion as far as agreeing with him or disagreeing with him? Okay, Mr. Justice. You do have a right to fly it. I do not think it should be flown on public property, like in front of a state house. You can also fly it at protests. But you mentioned misconceptions. There are no misconceptions about that flag. The flag that we see today is not actually the Confederate flag. The Confederate flag is similar to that of the United States. It has a blue upper right-hand corner with seven stars in a circle, two red stripes, and in the middle a white stripe. The flag we see today is an interpretation of a Confederate battle flag. And the interpretation went up in the 1960s, around the time the Civil Rights Movement started. And to the point where it's not racially motivated, then how come it's a symbol for so many groups like the KKK and the National Socialist Movement? who, as you all probably know, have white supremacist and neo-Nazi ideologies. Also, I find it ironic that people claim to be patriots when they fly that flag. The Confederates stabbed the Union in the back. They shot first, they murdered 500,000 American soldiers, and they argued that it was because of states' rights. I ask, states' rights to do what? What were we considering getting rid of at the time? 
not guns. We weren't trying to raise taxes. It was slavery. We were trying to stop the expansion of slavery to the West. The Southern aristocracy panicked and left the Union. They said, we are not Americans. We are from the South, so we're starting our own country. And then they proceeded to launch numerous terrorist attacks against the Union, shooting at Fort Sumter, murdering 200 people in Lawrence, Kansas. They argue that it was because of states' rights. I ask... States' rights to do what? What were we considering getting rid of at the time? Not guns, we weren't trying to raise taxes, it was slavery. We were trying to stop the expansion of slavery to the West. Yes, that's in high school. That that little dude probably got from his uncles or whatever that slavery it was for state it wasn't racial. Hell yeah, it was racial. What are you talking about? You gotta understand it teach you gotta reach one to teach one. Tell a friend to tell a friend, man. We gotta get we gotta get educated on history or it will be repeated all right this is the common sense party podcast yep tell a friend to tell a friend let's get common sense back to this country all right our next topic is infrastructure um i guess the we're doing the bipartisan infrastructure bill, but the one thing I don't understand about it is that will the Democrats pull the trigger on the robust singular bill that they, they that uh, Pelosi said that she will she won't vote she won't pass the bipartisan until the robust spending is robust bill is passed also so. Let's check this out. This is Ted Cruz, by the way. Mr. President, Senator from Texas. Mr. President, I rise today to discuss the mammoth $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill before the Senate. On Sunday night, we finally got to see the 2,700-page infrastructure bill that we will be voting on sometime tomorrow or Saturday. And what we saw is that Democrats want to give billions of dollars to unelected bureaucrats in the Biden administration to spend however they please. This bill spends $21.5 billion to create a new office at the Department of Energy called the Office of Clean Energy Demonstrations, which would give President Biden's Secretary of Energy the power to use taxpayer dollars to invest in whatever green energy initiative she likes. Reminiscent of Solyndra, we can have the same bankruptcies at taxpayer expense. This bill spends $24 billion in taxpayer dollars to preserve the water in San Francisco Bay. And the Long Island Sound would receive $106 million in taxpayer dollars. As the New York Times reported, quote, Climate resiliency programs would receive their largest burst of government spending ever from this bill. And the Wall Street Journal rightly called it, quote, 
a major down payment on President Biden's Green New Deal. That's exactly what this bill is. Furthermore, this bill institutes a new tax on 42 chemicals that will raise prices for everyday consumers. Texans will bear the brunt of these higher prices because 40% of the manufacturing plants that this new tax will hit are in Texas alone. But this tax will also hurt Louisiana and Michigan and Pennsylvania and Ohio and other manufacturing states. Indeed, this provision will also likely make many of the raw materials used in infrastructure projects more expensive. I filed an amendment that would strike this harmful provision. Not only will manufacturing plants in Texas be hurt by this new tax, but for some of these plants, the new taxes will exceed profit margins, leading to plant closings and more and more manufacturing moving to China. In effect, the loss of these plants would result in lower tax revenue to the federal government, not more. Imports would rise, U.S. exports would fall, and production in the United States would fall as well. Ironically, this infrastructure bill also tries to grow more critical minerals manufacturing and personal protective equipment, or PPE, manufacturing in America. But it places a brand new tax on both of these things. PPE is made with many of the 42 chemicals this infrastructure bill now wants to tax. And four of these chemicals are on the Biden administration's own critical minerals list. The old saying was, if it moves, tax it. And if it stop, stops moving, subsidize it. Well, this bill taxes the things that we're trying to get moving in the first place. This bill is also a liberal spending wish list. The fact of the matter is, this bill spends too much money and it's not paid for. We're told that this bill would in part be paid for with $205 billion in repurposed COVID relief funds. But when the bill text was released, magically those funds weren't there. It became apparent instead only about $50 billion in COVID funds was being used to help pay for this bill. Some have claimed that the bill is paid for, but by any measure, the pay-fors are quite simply gimmicks. This is a bait-and-switch, and the bill is not paid for like we were promised. At a time when we spent trillions of dollars already to combat a deadly pandemic, at a time when we're seeing rising inflation across the country, we can't responsibly be spending yet another trillion dollars. Yeah, responsible. Motherfucker, you gave the top 1% a tax cut. What kind of bullshit is that? Look, he just... He's trying to save his ass and his constituents in Texas because they moving away from fossil fuels. Change is coming. Let them know change is coming. This is a way that we we need to get our stuff done. And since when paying for stuff is a bad thing, we pay $1,600 for a goddamn Gucci bag, but 
we can't invest in infrastructure that's what you're talking about uh, anyway tell a friend tell a friend that this is a common sense party podcast rate us review us give us uh five stars it's google spotify we're available on ig facebook uh, send us an email at the Common Sense Party Podcast Advertisers. You can put your spot right here. Uh, our next infrastructure comment comes from Centers for Langford. Uh, see how they try to make this uh, a boogeyman issue. Check us out. Madam President, I have an amendment uh, that we're calling up. It's a very straightforward amendment. Uh, this deals simply with how we handle E-Verify. The E-Verify system is very simple and straightforward. It's been used all over the country. It's a nonpartisan issue that we've used for decades now. It verifies whether the people that we're actually hiring and all this purchasing that we're doing, this massive billions of dollars, will actually be... The Senate will be in order. The simple, straightforward piece of it is we're putting billions of dollars into our economy right now. We're doing a lot of infrastructure with this bill. The promise should be that we're not just buying American, but we're actually hiring Americans as well. This is a bipartisan issue, quite frankly. President Biden just today released a statement that this is a once-in-a-generation investment in our infrastructure and will create good-paying union jobs. The Senate will be in order. President Biden just today said this is a once-in-a-generation investment in our infrastructure will create good-paying union jobs, repairing our roads and bridges, replacing lead pipes, building energy transmission lines, it invests in clean energy, manufacturing in zero-emission vehicles, ensuring that the jobs in the clean energy industry are good-paying, quality, American jobs. That's a great promise to be able to make, and it's a great statement to make. What this amendment does is to make sure it actually is American jobs. We know there's a tremendous pull factor with the American good-paying jobs that are out there. This E-Verify requirement puts in place both for the contractors and subcontractors they will actually be American citizens. So with that, I ask for support for this bill. Hold on a second. Just hold on a second, please. Thank you very much, sir. The senator from Illinois. Madam President, if you like a federal mandate, here's one. Senator Langford wants a federal mandate to require that anyone who receives a grant from this bill has to sign up for E-Verify. Well, what does that mean? It means a school district in my home state that ended up getting a grant under this bill for energy efficient improvements, renewable energy improvements at public school facilities, would now be required by the Langford Amendment, the federal mandate, to have e-verify to check out the cafeteria workers at the school district. Is that what we really want to do? Well, how good is e-verify? Some states have done it voluntarily. Eight of them have done it. You think if you run all these employees through the e-verify process, how good is it? Well, I can tell you how good it is. You know how many illegal aliens you find when you go through e-verify? One percent. One percent. So he's creating a federal mandate and regulations on districts that are just trying to get energy improvement and reduce their costs and putting in an e-verify requirement to get those illegal aliens. Well, it turns out that isn't a situation at all. It's a mandate that's unnecessary. I beg my colleagues to give these school districts and others no more red tape, but less red tape. Please oppose the Langford Amendment. 
minutes left? 19 seconds remaining. Thank you. Madam President, this, this is not just a mandate. This is just a statement if we're going to put American tax dollars in place that we're actually hiring Americans to do it. If we're going to build America, let's also hire Americans in the process. That shouldn't be inconsistent with our basic values. All right. He said build America. He's talking about let's go ahead and tell them that we looking for illegal aliens or hey if you have undocumented workers who work at a yeah, say a cafeteria or on your site ice will come get you like i said they're trying to make this the boogeyman man fuck y'all let's get this done we need to fix our goddamn roads bridges infrastructure internet bringing internet which is a utility now um let's see what else fixed clean water what's the problem with clean water we've seen time and time again people who have money don't want to pay but they gotta pay into what they they gotta pay in because they're part of the system too again the wealth gap is just exploding and it's gonna start a civil war but uh beyond all that this is what happened the yeas are 67 the nays are 27 three-fifths of the senators duly chosen and sworn having voted in the affirmative the motion is agreed to in another rare weekend session the u.s senator on saturday voted to advance a one trillion dollar infrastructure package a procedural yet important step forward after months of negotiations between President Joe Biden and a bipartisan group of senators. The vote came after an impassioned plea from Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. We can get this done the easy way or the hard way. It's in either case, the Senate will stay in session until we finish our work. It's up to my Republican colleagues how long it takes. Senators agreed to limit debate on the legislation, which represents the biggest investment in decades in America's physical infrastructure including roads, bridges, airports, and waterways. The chamber's top Republican, Mitch McConnell, also signaled support for the bill. I hope senators can work together in a bipartisan way to get more amendments up and continue improving this important bill. Our colleagues on both sides deserve to be heard. The timing for passage remains unclear, as lawmakers prepare for possible votes on amendments and are working behind closed doors to reach an agreement that would allow the Senate to complete its work on the legislation quickly. Passage would be a major victory for Schumer, Biden, and a bipartisan group of senators who spent months crafting the package and would send the bill on to the House of Representatives. In a tweet Saturday, Biden wrote, quote, The bipartisan infrastructure deal is a historic, once-in-a-generation investment in our nation's infrastructure. We can't afford not to do it. Yeah, we can't afford to, but Republicans are slow playing the slow playing the 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 ball game, waiting for midterm elections and stuff like that. So yeah, it might go through now, but 
we gotta put the pressure on them and put the pressure on them put the pressure on them to get the robust bill go through uh check this one out finally tonight an update on that washington moment when mitch mcconnell was reminded who runs the senate which we remixed on last night's show with that savage move Now, last night, I asked you all for ideas for other soundtracks for that moment, and we've heard from thousands of you already. So tonight, we're debuting the top three. All ideas from MSNBC viewers. Coming in third is Carly Simon's anthem that might apply to the minority leader who walked into the Senate like it was his yacht. You walked into the party like you were walking into a yacht. McConnell strutting in like it was his yacht, but finding out Schumer is the captain now, if you will. Coming in at number two, several of you recommended Foreigner or MOP for how, let's be honest, Schumer did McConnell cold. Tactics. Cold. It was that cold. And here we go. Let me have a, a drum roll, please. Coming in at number one of MSNBC Ideas for the remix, a song suggested by many viewers. I'm talking about a Percy Mayfield classic popularized by the great Ray Charles. Hit the road, Jack. thought the message was obviously hit the road mitch and it's fitting you actually all nominated a song from such a great artist from georgia because that moment's not just about chuck schumer schumer could only invoke the majority's power because georgia voters told mitch to hit the road turning a red state blue after a bruising four years and as mcconnell waits his turn you can you can bet georgia's still on his mind so georgia's ray charles gets the last word tonight I said, Georgia, whoa, Georgia. Yeah, Georgia's going to stay in a lot of people's minds because, well, Georgia's what changed everything in our politics this year. Now, you can't really top Mr. Charles, but... If you all have more ideas for more remix songs, you can still send them to us. You can post your song idea for what matches that moment or extends it at Ari Melber on Facebook or Twitter. You can always link with me at AriMelber.com. Yeah, that was a flex move. Yeah, he flexed on him. He did it on purpose. That's right. Let him know. I'm in charge. But if you see that clip, everybody in the back was laughing. They were laughing. I, you see all the, the smiles and the the meth head from Florida. Yeah, he was embarrassed. 
whatever that senator's name who was the former governor yeah he was like he was he was pissed but guess what we don't care we don't care we don't care all right moving on to our next story authoritarianism uh we're gonna do a two-parter this is from msnbc check it out it was a violent attempt to overturn the will of the american people to seek power at all cost to replace the ballot with brute force to destroy not to build without democracy nothing is possible with it everything is a new Quinnipiac poll finds 57% of Americans believe the riot on January 6th was an attack on democracy that should never be forgotten. 38% believe too much is being made about the riot, and it's time to move on. This comes as Max Boot of the Washington Post warns in his latest column, quote, Yes, Trump tried to stage a coup. By denying it, the right is laying the groundwork for another one. He goes on to write, if Republicans gain control of the House and the Senate in 2022, an outcome made more likely by their gerrymandering and voter suppression, they will be in a strong position to return Trump to the White House, even if he loses the 2024 election. Rest assured, even if the worst happens, there will be plenty of intellectuals happy to rationalize the end of our democracy. Still with us, Don Calloway and Mark McKinnon. An interesting episode uh, is occurring in Hungary, and has been for the last several years, Mark, uh, in which it is turning away from, from democratic uh, institutions without actually necessarily saying so. Uh, one of the right wing's most influential characters, Tucker Carlson, he's broadcasting from Hungary, uh, and he's praising its leadership and its government. Uh, Jonathan Chait has written a column on this in which he says, Tucker Carlson has seen the future and it's fascist. He writes, Hungary's democratic backsliding was slow and gradual, without a single dramatic moment when its character flipped from democracy to dictatorship. Even now, it retains the surface trappings of a democracy without the liberal characteristics that make those processes meaningful. If America ceases to be a democracy, it will likely follow a path similar to Orban, speaking about the, uh, the, the, the head of Hungary. I think it's interesting, uh, Mark, that, that people, if they don't see us becoming an authoritarian regime, they don't necessarily see that you can become undemocratic at the same time. Well, it's fascinating, isn't it, Ollie? And, it, and it's so interesting that Tucker Carlson is over there checking out the roadmap. Uh, and and you, you, looking at that poll, you talk about the 38% of people who just think we should move on. Those are people who are susceptible to this slow evolution toward authoritarianism. And, you know, I'm struck by the notion, Ollie, that, uh, you know, Republicans didn't want to have a single commission or have a single hearing on. Uh, the greatest insurrection uh, on our nation's capital in our history, and more Americans died at the Capitol in the United States than died in Benghazi, and yet the Republicans want, wanted to and did hold 33 hearings on Benghazi when fewer Americans died on foreign soil than they did here in America. Don, this seems to be a popular thing, though, amongst right-wing people, uh, th th these these trends and these memes and these these ideas like C Tucker Carlson is, is uh, putting forward uh, are, are getting popular. So what happens? What's your fear if Republicans do take back Congress in 2022? Oh, I mean, you know, my fears at this point are far beyond just the, the rabid 
conservative and nonsensical policies, you know, of 15, 20 years ago, the, the destruction of the social safety net and, you know, uh, further tax cuts for corporate billionaires at that's this quite- point in my fear. Yeah, that, that's the easy stuff. At this point, my fears are the destruction of democracy. Uh, I highly recommend that everybody watching us pick up a small book with big ideas called On Tyranny by Timothy D. Snyder. It talks about the little steps along the way that end up in an authoritarian, totalitarian system. But I got to have an honest moment with you, um, Ali. You know, it's very tough as a black man to talk about this type of stuff because... I understand the history of democracy and I understand political philosophy, but the reality is that Republicans are dismantling democracy as a response to us becoming a multiracial uh, country where people are educated, uh, black and brown people are educated and standing up and have societal power, have economic power, and in response to that we are seeing the dismantling, systemic and intentional dismantling of this democracy. So I can't talk about this purely in terms of political philosophy without recognizing that we are fully moving to a majority uh, non-white nation, and this is the response to that. How do how do you fix this in the Republican Party, Mark? How do you how do you how do you go from a party that that like small government and 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 uh, you know things that can be can be argued into this. If you look at that poll we were just talking about, the Quinnipiac poll, sixty percent say it would be bad for the country if Trump ran in twenty twenty four. Thirty two percent say it would be good, but seventy three percent of Republicans say it would be good if Trump ran again. Well, I think there's 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 some hope in that, and I'm a prisoner of hope, as Cory Booker would say. And uh, you know, I'm I'm encouraged by people like Liz Cheney. Uh, you know, who as as you know, one of the few with the remaining backbone. Um, you know, I listen. I I think that the the attachment to Trump is a is very short sighted and a short term strategy. And people are bending to his knee and to his power. Nobody really likes him or or is particularly attracted to any ideology that he has because he doesn't really have anything other than power. Uh, and I think that we will see. It's not going to happen as quick as I'd like to have happen. But I think that uh, if Donald Trump does get nominated again somehow for the uh, presidency in 2024, I think he'll get beaten. I think he'll get beat badly this time. He'll get beat worse than he did before. But again, to Don's you know, concerns and yours that we've raised all night, I think that's part of the reason the Republicans are doing all that they can to overturn whatever could happen in 2024. Yeah, the ass is scared. And all it is is that they don't like that what people have been telling them for years they're going to become a minority in the country alright this is a common sense party podcast tell a friend to tell a friend bring back the common sense to the country uh, read us, review us, give us 5 stars at Google, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, we're available on Facebook, IG uh, send us an email at the common sense party podcast, support the common sense and our next is going to Bill Maher. And check this out. This is about critical race theory. And people don't understand. It's kind of deep. Check it out. Let's get back into hard news. I hate it. We're having such a good time. And now, now we're going to fight. And now I'm going to... I'm going to make you fight again, nah. but it's okay. But i got to talk about that. Muzzle laws. There's these laws that have been introduced in a number of states to not talk about critical race theory. Now, critical race theory, I must say, to begin with, uh, I hadn't heard the term probably a year ago. 
Now I hear it every day. I think Americans are just starting to hear it. And I think no one knows exactly what it is. They know it has something to do with race, and it's some kind of a theory. <laughs> right? <laughs> how would you describe it? And then we'll ask, how would you describe it? What is critical so, race theory? I will admit that I read a lot of critical race theory in law school. So, you know, the work of Derek Bell or John or Jean Stefanczyk This is the stuff Delgado. no one knows but you and six other people. Right. So, but, but what matters is, what is it, what is it practically... It's being taught in schools or some form of... Yes, there's a, there's a certain sort of crystallized version of it that is a lot less complex than what critical race theory actually is. But critical race theory essentially argues that racism is baked into all the systems of American society and that any sort of neutral system is in fact a guise for racial power. And so the argument is made by Derek Bell, for example, that Brown versus Board of Education, this is an argument he made in 1991, that Brown versus Board of Education was actually a way for the white community to leverage its own power. It wasn't an attempt to end segregation in public schools. Even things that are purportedly good in terms of race, so long as they uphold these broader systems, things like capitalism or things like the meritocracy, these things are actually just guises for power. And so what that boils down to in sort of practical terms is all disparity equals discrimination. If you can see any stat where black people are underperforming white people, this means the system was set up for the benefit of white people and that white people have a duty to tear down these systems in order to alleviate the racism that's implicit in those systems. When it comes to schools, what this tends to boil down to is kids who are white have experienced privilege because the system was built for white people and we have to change well, the standards. Right. Now, okay, well, so Malcolm, you tell me your definition. Oh, I agree with everything he just said. Oh, oh, great. He's <laughs> and I appreciate you being honest and defining of what it's like to be black American. Right? That, 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 that is, I mean, we're talking about a system. That's unfair. Uh, well, not, well we no, I'm just saying I agree with all of those suppositions because they are grounded in truth. Look, when... I'm a, you know, and the funny thing is, it's not just the African Americans, right? It's also the, the, the Scalp Act of 1749, where for 300 modern dollars, you had to cut off the head or the hair of an Indian to prove that you got them out of the way so they could settle. That's a little bit of American history that people should know about. The Chinese Exclusion Acts of the 1840s. These okay. are things we but, don't but, talk about. Yeah, okay. that's not, I mean, that's, 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 that's not, it's not true that people don't talk about these things. We all did you learn about... You don't want them talked about? No, that's well, not that, true that's, either. You want to cancel No, them? Malcolm, I'm sorry, you're lying. No, I, that's, that's lying. That's, that's, that's not just not that awesome. it, it is lying. It's, I not only not, have, I've, I've personally I, talked I about many of the things that you just mentioned. People, I define critical, le uh, critical race theory by citing the actual authors of critical race theory, and you seem to be a pretty good beneficiary of the meritocracy because you have merit, Malcolm. So if you're going to criticize the meritocracy yes. as an outgrowth of white supremacy, then you're going to have to tear down the system that you've succeeded in because you have merit. You or know, do not have merit. You know, when my great-great-grandfather ran away from slavery to join the 111th U.S. Colored Troops and fight against the South, keeping human beings as slaves, he didn't think, you know what? In 150 years, my great-great-grandson's going to have to sit on stage and argue with a guy who thinks all that's bullshit. All right? I'm just saying. There is no controversy. The controversy that's made up is people saying that this is being discussed, this is being taught in schools, and that kids should be kept away from it. That's not true. It's not even a real controversy. The fifth largest school district in America, Clark County, just decided that they were going to lower standards with regard to testing because they wanted to alleviate disparities in outcomes. That is an outgrowth of critical race theory. Can you draw a straight line to it? Yes. 
100%. Because when you say that the meritocracy is an outgrowth of white supremacy, and then you suggest that I'm somehow denying that slavery took place, or that no, your great 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 grandfather was a hero, because I'm saying that I want people tested when they are in school to see if they are good at school. But I think it's also a leap to say that he thought that was bullshit because that's not what it is. I mean, we're talking, are we talking about 2021 or are we talking about 1861? Because the point is, can we talk about 1861 and 2021? Yes, we can. And I don't know who's against talking about history. Well, I mean, I, I mean, understand that they want to, you know, in Texas, they're talking about removing yes. references to the Ku Klux Klan. They're talking about right. removing, well, I mean, come on. That's Texas. It's, I mean, how can you watch Forrest Gump without even knowing who Nathan Bedford Forrest is? Right? I mean, these are people who are historical figures who did bad things. No one is actually saying we want to go back and erase everything and restart and talk to you about these things. Critical race theory is a subject because the Republican right has made it a subject. No, no, no. No, no not, real school okay. organizations hope, are, are no, mandating I, this I hope, for kids. I hope every Democrat in America takes your perspective oh, and, they will, and, and, and they will be shellacked at the polls. Roy Teixeira just wrote a piece, the, the emerging Democrat majority, Roy Teixeira, he just wrote a piece about what he called the Fox News fallacy, a tendency of people on the left to believe that just because Fox News mentioned something, it can't be real. The reality is, a lot of this stuff is taught in schools. You mean like the, viruses? Well, uh, okay. Well, can I, can I? I'm, I'm, now, wait, now I'm just, I don't, I don't know. Now I'm just confused. Can I just, what you're as far as what, what people are experiencing in their lives, in their schools. Yeah. Okay, you're right. There are states, like from the old Confederacy, I think, who do want to airbrush history. That's not, I think, the majority in this country. If you ask me critical race theory, if you say, does that mean teach history unvarnished? I would say yes, that I'm totally for critical race theory. If you say, does it mean acknowledging that racism persists today? I would say yes, teach that. Uh, should we have remedial means? That's like affirmative action. There's lots of people who are against that. I'm still for that. I still think when you read the statistics, and I have some of them here, uh, blacks earn 40% less, 90% uh, less family wealth, high poverty high schools, 72% blacks to 31% white, live six years shorter, half as likely to go to college, eight times more incarcerated. These are real statistics. The Nobody question is, wait, how do we... What do we do to address them? I th what I these are wonderful. real statistics. I, you think we should address them? You think we should address them, right? The question is, what are we doing about it? Because if, ra if critical race theory means making children in school fixate on race, I'm not for that. If it makes, if it's about collective guilt, I didn't do anything to your great 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 grandfather. I don't want to be responsible for that. If it's about, you know, a toxicity of just from being born white, uh, if it's about dividing everybody into oppressor and oppressive, oppressed and oppressor, I'm not for that. So there are things that are being taught and are going around that I'm not for, that if that was critical race theory, I wouldn't be for. I agree with you. I don't think that's critical race theory. But it's being, I, okay. no, no, well, I think again, what's happened here, I think that what's happened here as this for, this terminology, sort of like defund the police, has been hijacked and been framed around the left as that they want to do all this, they want to rip down the, right, the so, entire social fabric of America and they want us to be guilty well, about everything. I want you to teach history. I had a lot of people in the military. Hold on.
had a lot of people in the military, senior officers who had to make life and death decisions, who were total morons about the cultures and institutions right, so, and countries so, we were going into, and people died because so I have of a that. Question. I don't need that here. If we agree that history should be taught, why are you defending critical race theory, which is not history? Did I not just say a moment ago that I think that term has been hijacked and that's not okay, what we're so talking about? Okay, so let's say critical race theory. I'm going to go back and repeat that I didn't say that. Okay. You, you, you are literally uh, defending say. critical race theory by redefining it as just teaching history, which is a cheap semantic trick and you know it. Is this right. what you do on your show? Because it sucks. I appreciate that, but I, sure I, will, I, will, I will comfort myself sure tonight by a, sleeping on my bed made of money. I'm sure we have an adult. Oh. I'm, sure we, I'm sure we have that. I'm sure we have another adult subject to no, talk that, about. Well, how about that Andrew Cuomo? Uh, <laughs> I tell you, he's the. Yeah. Bill dropped the ball on this one. Bill is uneducated on a, what critical race theory is and he's starting to he's starting to lose it again uh, Shapiro is an asshole he tried to flex on because he's rich again Bill Shapiro is an ass Bill needs to do some more research critical race theory is a it was only taught at law level again we how can we how come we can't walk and chew gum at the same time? I really don't understand. Alright. This is the Common Sense Party Podcast. Tell a friend to tell a friend. We're available on Google, Spotify. Give us five stars. Uh, available on Facebook and IG. Send us an email at the Common Sense Party Podcast pod at Gmail and support the Common Sense. Uh, remember, our oath is to bring the common sense back to this country so we can live in a country for everyone. And we'll see you next week. All is lost. Not while I'm standing. Blackest night. No evil shall escape my sight.